<laughs> so, one of my favorite tropes in fiction is actually the unwanted guest that won't leave, uh, especially in horror and comedies about hauntings or that ridiculous relative who comes into town, you can't seem to get him out of your hair. You guys know these stories? The Haunting of Hill House, one of my favorites, Neighbors, that's a comedy you shouldn't watch, I didn't tell you to. It's funny. R rated R. Anyway, I eat these movies up. I love this trope. And I think the reason is because I find it so painfully relatable. I am never more uncomfortable than when someone's in my home who overstays their welcome and who I don't want to be there. Is anyone else with me on that? You're just like, get out. <laughs> it's time for bed. We all have that person that if we are honest when we're throwing a party, we kind of just hope they don't show up. Your crazy friend, it's you. If, I, if you don't know anybody, it's probably you, actually. <laughs> your crazy friend, your racist uncle, your politicized sibling, anybody? You may love them, but when it comes time to hosting Thanksgiving dinner, you kind of just hope they have other plans. For me, it was someone I knew in college. You see, he was smart, he was charismatic, he was funny, but he lived to debate. He would start arguments and take up positions that he didn't believe in at all just to try to get under people's skin, just to start a fight. He was willfully obtuse. It seemed to be baked into his DNA. Do you all know someone like that? Again, if you don't, it's probably you. <laughs> but he especially loved debating Christians. Any chance he could, anywhere he could. At UF, go Gators, we had street preachers. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the one. We had street preachers, <laughs> you know, the ones who would yell at students from a box and tell them of their sinfulness, the ones that are best to just walk by and not make eye contact with and ignore. Yeah, not this guy. This guy would get into shouting matches with them about like evolution and stuff, which y'all, it was super productive, let me tell you. But I think the most uncomfortable form in which this came out was that it was especially true when he was approached by Christians one-on-one. -on -one. Like when someone came up to him on campus with tracks or the Roman road, you know, one of those Christian athletes who is asked by an adult to do that to strangers. Or if he discovered that someone was Christian at a party. You see, he was the kind of person who studied apologetics and religion for the sheer purpose of tearing it apart. And he had this uncanny ability to identify an insecurity or a weakness in a person within two seconds of meeting them. Which you can imagine when those two things combined, it could become cruelty pretty quick. These poor, well-meaning Christians would engage him and the same script would play out. He'd start by asking them questions, seemingly sincere questions. In reality, these were traps, which they would eagerly walk into because they thought he genuinely cared what they had to say. And then slowly but surely, he would steadily start turning up the pressure, getting increasingly confrontational until he backed them into something they had no answer for. And then y'all, it was like a shark with blood in the water. It was ugly. It was often mean-spirited. It was often honestly abusive. Now stop. 
Who thinks that's someone they'd invite home for dinner or to a party they're hosting? Crickets. Phoenix has got my back. Good job, Phoenix. Be more honest. Who would be eager to engage such a person about Jesus exactly as they were then? Who'd prefer that someone else do that? Or maybe that he chill out a little bit before he shows up at E3 or to your growth group. Who'd feel intimidated grabbing coffee with him? Or who'd just rather avoid doing that at all? Anybody? The truth is, and it's okay, we all know a person or a type of person who we'd struggle to welcome into our home. Welcome at E3, welcome into our growth group, because quite frankly, they have a quality that we find distasteful or threatening. But what I would ask you is this, and this is gonna sound cliche, but it's important for where we're going today. What would Jesus say to that person? Would he say, turn or burn? Would he say, you're good, never change? Would he ignore him? Would he engage him at all? What would Jesus say to such a person? That's our question for today. That's where we're going in week two of We Are the Outsiders, the series where we're going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark, exploring its vision of Jesus, who he was, what he did, why he mattered. Now, tangent, if you're interested in the Gospel of Mark verse by verse and really studying it, like Liz said, we're running a parallel class to this series on Tuesday nights here at E3, and you can also join online. Shameless plug. But for the Sunday sermons, we're taking a more helicopter approach. We're trying to get in our minds this broad narrative of Mark while landing down in specific stories from each chapter that capture this one central theme that Mark is obsessed with. That is how Jesus intentionally sought out those considered outsiders, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor, the broken, the lost, the shunned in his society. In Mark, it's the outsiders that embrace Jesus's radical message, who say yes to discipleship, while the insiders of power, privilege, religion, wealth, they seem to miss it in Mark's eyes. You see, that's because Mark is convinced that to follow Jesus, especially to follow Jesus to the cross, we must recognize that we're all in some way outsiders, misfits, broken, failures, rejected, lost. To truly get how Jesus reorients everything and turns it upside down, we have to come to the recognition that we've been outside before. See, Jesus is going to completely flip their world upside down. The first will become last. The humble will be exalted. The outsiders are going to be the ones who come in. And he believes that's an invitation that only makes sense to those who have been on the outside looking in when it comes to our world. And today, we're going to dive into chapter two, a specific story that I think captures this profoundly. But first, let's recap where we went. Last Sunday, Scott set up the Gospel of Mark as this action-oriented gospel about Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Mark introduced Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come to make things right. And then the story just immediately got going, didn't it? Mark's just like, boom, 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 time to roll. Jesus proclaims that through him, the kingdom of God has come. 
And then he begins enacting it wherever he goes, calling disciples, teaching, confronting evil, liberating people in bondage, healing the sick. And chapter two continues in that vein. It continues that kingdom action with these healing stories where Jesus begins upending key religious symbols of his day, namely the Sabbath and fasting, which, if you're interested in those stories, come on Tuesday night. We'll cover them then. Last shameless plug, I promise. But in each story, what I want to highlight today is that there's this common thread. Jesus presents a radical new vision of religion and God that creates conflict with the religious insiders of his day. And halfway through chapter 2, we find this powerful story. We pick up in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So Jesus is doing his thing. He's walking, he's teaching, he's drawing crowds until he notices this man named Levi in the crowds, whom he calls to become his disciple. Now stop. You may not notice this, but there are some oddities in this scene. While it's not odd for a rabbi, which Jesus was, to have disciples, it is incredibly odd when you think about the calling part. You see, normally an interested pupil would approach a rabbi, ask to be mentored or discipled by him, and then would usually have to prove their worth, prove that they're worthy of discipleship, which makes sense, right? What if a disciple did not want to follow you? Should you be the one initiating that conversation? Probably not. But what we see here is strange. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus just stops in the middle of his walk, picks out this guy from the crowd and says, follow me. He initiates the relationship. That's odd. Like I said, what if Levi doesn't want to be a disciple? But what's more strange is who he targets. Levi is absolutely not disciple material. That's because he is a tax collector. Now, who here dislikes taxes? Who here dislikes paying taxes? Not as much as the first century Israelite did. Let me tell you. You see, 100 years before Jesus' ministry, Israel was conquered and occupied by the Roman Empire. And they maintained their control of their conquered territories through two key mechanisms. The first was violence, not fun. They would crush revolts. They would force people to obey. And the second was crippling taxation. You see, ordinary Israelites in Jesus' day were taxed upwards of 75% of what they had. They were taxed into destitution by Rome. Many were forced to sell and become laborers on their own ancestral land under rich Roman land barons. So get in the shoes of Jesus' audience. You're working for nothing on your own land for your enemy who taxed it out from under you. How are you doing? Pretty bad, right answer. Not great, Bob. Not great. Question, does that sound like a brutal system to you? Yeah, not very likable. Well, it was a brutal system. And it was one operated by tax collectors. Individuals backed by the threat of Roman violence who would go around collecting what's due from these conquered peoples. Or, in Levi's case, an Israelite who collaborated with Rome to make a career out of oppressing his own people. 
question. Do you love that? No, (laughs) no, no, no one did. Tax collecting was labeled as a despised trade in the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud, the rabbinical tradition. Tax collectors were seen as race traders. They were seen as extortionists because they were. Rome only cared about getting what they asked for and they allowed tax collectors to extract more than the rate and keep whatever the profit was, which most of them did. And tax collectors were presumed to be religiously impure since they hung out with Gentiles. In other words, this is the last person a rabbi would accept as a disciple. And yet, Jesus calls him to follow him. And notice how Levi responds. Immediately, without a word, he gets up, leaves his tax collecting booth, and follows Jesus. I want you to hold on to that thought. Because Jesus then bams it up a level. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now stop again. So after calling this despised ragamuffin, this outcast, Jesus throws a dinner party to celebrate his arrival into his group of disciples, which is a huge deal in Jesus' first century culture. It's not just having someone over for dinner. No, breaking bread was an offer of intimacy, friendship, Peace, trust, familial acceptance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Sharing a table in Jesus' culture meant sharing life. Meals defined socially who was approvable and who wasn't in the eyes of the host. Thus, guests were to be selected carefully. Now, who's at Jesus' dinner? Does he look like he selected carefully? Tax collectors, bad, and sinners. And you're like, oh, maybe someone who uses the F word every now and again. That's not what the word sinners means here. Sinners here in Greek implies a truly immoral person, like break the Ten Commandments immoral, like the murderer, the adulterer, the thief. I mean, this is bonkers if you lived in the first century. Imagine the scene. Jesus hosting a banquet of social pariahs to the first degree. Think about what that said to those watching this party. It draws attention, believe it or not. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees, they see this and they aren't pleased. And to understand why, you have to understand who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees, which is a term that means the separated ones, were a prominent and quite frankly popular religious sect in Judaism in Jesus' day. They believed in strict observance of God's law, the Torah, the law of Moses, and that God's people were fundamentally supposed to be set apart, to be holy. You all have heard the word holy before, right? In their eyes, that meant rejecting what was unholy, separating from it, and striving for perfect holiness. Thus, was a rabbi, a prominent Jewish teacher, associating with these kinds of people appropriate in their eyes? Absolutely not. 
No, they object for reasons that, quite frankly, many Christians still hold today. They believe that immorality could rub off on others and that one's company reflected on their character. Birds of a feather fly together. Don't hang out with the wrong crowd, right? You heard that from your grandparents sometime recently, anybody? They also believed that to share a meal with such disreputable people was unthinkable. Eating food offered by someone unobservant of Jewish laws who hangs out with Gentiles was just not a good idea. You have no idea if the meal was prepared kosher or not. You were asking for it, asking to become unclean, asking to touch what was unholy. To do this was at best risking spiritual and moral contamination and at worst, condoning behavior that in their mind violated utterly God's law. Of course, they're aghast. Of course, they ask, what are you doing, Rabbi? Jesus has thoughts. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think this is a beautiful response. I think it's profound. Jesus reorients, turns upside down their understanding of God, the outsider themselves, how God operates in this world. See, for the Pharisees, you get right first, God accepts you second, and then maybe his people will accept you third. If sinners haven't properly repented by their standards, disinfected themselves of their impurity and their unholiness, then they were to be rejected until they do because in their worldview, that's how God operates. And Jesus says, you got it all backwards. The Messiah's a doctor. Do doctors only help healthy people? Do doctors wait until the sick are fully recovered to come to their bedside and offer them medicine? No. Doctors get close. They learn the symptoms and they offer a remedy for the illness. They act with one goal, to get the sick person well. That's it. It reminds me of the bounded versus centered set concept that Pastor Scott introduced a couple weeks ago. This kept coming into my mind this week. In bounded sets, inclusion in a group is determined by clear, shared characteristics, purity, moral checklists, identifying markers. But in these centered sets, inclusion in a group is determined by whether someone or something is moving towards the center, whether they are moving towards or away from Jesus in a given moment. Jesus isn't interested in the Pharisees' moral checklists their shared tribal characteristics. No, his question is this. What direction are you moving in right now? Are you moving towards or away from me? That is the only thing he cares about when it's about who is in and who is out in his kingdom. And in that vision, of course, Jesus says, why would I avoid the broken? That's who I've come for the sick, the weary, the broken, the sinners, the outsiders who know they don't have their lives together in this moment, who know they need help. That is who I have come to seek out, call in and heal. That's why I'm here. That's how our God operates. I mean, this is profound, is it not? I think it depicts two wildly contrasting visions of religion and God. 
The Pharisees deal with brokenness through sin management. Sin is something bad people do that they could catch if they get too close, which turns religion into enforcing rules to safeguard yourself and others from those labeled immoral. Religion that turns broken, needy, sick people, not into those that we are called to help, but into threats. Those that don't meet insider standards, they're not lost, they're not hurting, they're not confused, they're not broken, they don't need help, they're dangerous in this worldview. To be kept at arm's length, to be shunned, to be protected from, until they get themselves right according to our arbitrary standards. And Jesus is diametrically opposed to that vision of religion and God. For Jesus, the broken person isn't a threat. They're sick. And they don't need your judgment. They need a compassionate doctor. Jesus looks at brokenness as a wound to be healed not as a reason for rejection. And that shapes everything that he says and does. It shapes how he responds to the wounded person in front of him. It shapes how he heals. He doesn't just yell at them to repent. He befriends them. He shares a meal with them. He uses this meal to show that their position, their shady reputation and their brokenness aren't liabilities to receiving and responding to his call that they aren't barriers to experiencing the outpouring of God's love and grace. God doesn't need to be safeguarded in Jesus' mind. Jesus doesn't fear corruption from touching what's broken. No, in his world, through Jesus, it's God's loving grace that contaminates and changes the broken, not the other way around. It's God's loving grace that touches the tax collector and makes the disciple, that touches the broken and makes them healed. He excludes no one. He says, there's no outsider at my banquet. All are welcome at this party. Repentance, transformation, healing come by means of love given by grace, not to earn it. It's in response to an invitation that you've already been given freely to come in before Levi's changed one single stinking thing about his life. I mean, that's beautiful, is it not? That's not sin management. (sighs) That's seeking to heal Levi and change the entirety of his life. That's an invitation extended to all. And it's the outsiders who answer it. Because apparently Levi's the only one in this room who's aware of his need for redemptive work in his life. And y'all, it works. Levi has probably heard the Pharisees pitch before. But has he stopped being a tax collector before this moment? No. He's been yelled at. He's had someone, I promise you, tell him to repent. But that didn't change his life. No, this changed his life. Look at this. When Jesus calls, what does he do? He gets up, he abandons his booth, and he follows. Do y'all think that the Romans were cool with tax collectors who abandoned their post? They are not a fan of that at all. 
A tax collector who leaves his post, a military general who leaves his post is no longer either of those things in the eyes of Rome. Levi's old life is done, y'all. He can't go back. He has in this moment forfeited his past, his status, his money, his job, his identity to follow this man that he didn't even know. Jesus welcomed him in, this outsider of all outsiders. And y'all, that scandalized people. It scandalizes people today, does it not? But the scandal of grace can't be something we reject because it's uncomfortable, because of what the world thinks about it. We must be walloped and upended by the good news because we have all been outsiders and yet we've been invited into a banquet where there are no outsiders anymore. And that's good news, is it not? And to close, I want to return to who I started with, the jerk, the unlikable, no fun guy at parties. I want to give you some more information about this character just to see if it changes your attitudes towards him, your thoughts about him, how you respond to him, given his story and the story of Jesus. You see, when it comes to showing up here at our church, joining our small group, meeting for coffee, I think it might change your attitudes and your actions. Would things change if I told you that from a young age, he was aware that something was just off? He didn't know what, but he didn't seem to feel things like other kids did. Years later, he discovered the word for that is depression. But all he knew then was that he didn't feel comfortable, lovable, acceptable in his own skin, which adults in his church were all too comfortable telling him was true. Would things change if I told you he grew up in church and actually quite liked it for a time? That is, until his intellect and his curiosity, his gifts given to him by God, I believe, led him to ask hard questions, which were called doubts. And he began to struggle with behavior, which was called wickedness. That in the throes of confusion, fear, and mental illness, this kid reached out to Christian adults, only to be told that in no uncertain terms, neither his doubts nor his pain was acceptable. They were dangerous. They were infectious to the other kids. They weren't welcomed in this church, and thus neither was he. Would things change if I told you that he didn't know Jesus from Adam, but he did know these people, and he didn't know the pain of their rejection, and he did know that their God wouldn't welcome someone like him in their building? Would things change if I told you that after years of struggling with addiction, suicidal thinking, broken relationships, that he changed his life by the grace of God? Not through being yelled at, scolded to repent from a guy on a box he's never met, but through another broken person who understood his own need for grace, sitting down over coffee, hearing his story, and responding with simply, you know God loves you, right? Who invited him into his life to his table and to his home, to meet his family, to break bread, to share blessing? Would your response change if I confessed the deception and told you that person was me? Am I allowed in this church, E3? Am I welcome here? Is there a seat for me in Jesus' kingdom at his banquet? You say I'm welcome here, and I thank you for that. But you all already know me. You already see who I am now. What would it mean if you applied that loving invitation to the Levi in your life right now? 
What if he did the hard thing and you applied how you feel about me to your tax collector? How would it change if you believed that they could, through one invitation, one meal, come away from their tax collector booth? Leave it all behind to follow Jesus into a new life. How would that change how you treat them, how you respond to them, how you think about them, what you invite them to? I'm going to invite out the band now. I just want you to reflect on this, this thing that we have been given the privilege and the responsibility to offer to other people, an invitation to a party that was graciously given to us. The church, and thus E3, I believe at the core of my being, must be a place where everyone inside believes they're at a party that they have no business being invited to. But they were, and so is everyone else. A place that exists to be shared with the person not here yet. A place to be of celebration where the sick, broken, lost, isolated, hurting human beings are made well. A place that cheers when tax collectors and the Levi's of our world walk through that door. Can I get an amen? And they hear the call of Jesus. And they hear his call and they change. So, in this closing song, reflect Who's your outsider? Your Levi. If I can be provocative, you're Mike Overstreet. And are you willing to invite them in and welcome them home? Are you willing to give away the gift that you only by love and grace were given? The one that changed everything.